chapter 10. You should be there. And of course, last week it was Easter, and we're in John's gospel looking at the account of the resurrection. But a couple weeks before that, as our study of Mark's gospel, we have been looking at God's word. We've been looking at uh, Mark's account, what Jesus has to say about being successful, at least successful concerning the kingdom of God. And it's not the same as the world, uh, what the world tells you and I and how to be successful. But Jesus, in answering a question that the disciples had about being great, he would say to them that if you want to be great, then you need to be, first of all, last. You need to be the servant of all. And you need to be one in God's kingdom, considering to be great, that is willing to receive a child. And Jesus used the child as an illustration as he was in Capernaum, and he would say that you receive one of these little ones. You receive one, not just a, a child, certainly he's talking about a child, but one who's maybe seen as a little one in the world's eyes, one who is seen as less. You are to receive them, you are to love them, you are to minister to them, serve them. You minister to those who can do nothing for you. You are considered great when you do that. You minister and you serve those who cannot enhance you or your career or your prestige. And we looked at those marks of greatness that our Lord uh, spelled out to us in chapter 9. And we will see that he will pick it up again in, later on in chapter 10. So our Lord who came and said that I didn't come to be served but to be the servant of all. Jesus, he pictures and he models the perfect servant. And so he teaches his disciples, and we certainly make application for our own lives as we read his words, how it is that you and I can be great in the kingdom as well. So that's what we've looked at over the last couple studies in Mark's gospel. And we also see that Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem. He has already told his disciples that he's going to go to the city He's going to be rejected by the people, handed over to the chief priests and elders, and he's going to be crucified, but he's going to rise again after three days. And as we have seen, the response of the disciples are that they don't understand. They're confused. Um, they they uh, don't know exactly what's taking place, what's going to take place, and we see that is going to continue with the disciples as Jesus gets closer to the cross of Calvary. Also what we are seeing is the Pharisees are coming and they're really trying to test Jesus, trying to create controversy. And we saw that as we left off last week, that they came asking him about the whole issue concerning marriage and divorce. A very important issue, but it was a controversial issue in Jesus' day, just as it is in our day. And if you weren't here, I would encourage you, if you weren't here two weeks ago for that study that we did, as we opened up chapter 10, that you would pick up a, a CD of that teaching as Jesus talks about the whole issue of marriage and divorce and remarriage. And it's very important that we have an understanding what our Lord has to say about that issue. And so let's pick up our text as we now pick it up at chapter 10 of Mark's Gospel, verse 17. Now as he was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And so let's pray. Father, we ask that our hearts would be settled in, just willing and uh, openly just wanting to receive from you and your word right now. And Lord, that we would be taught and you would, uh, Lord, help us to make application for our own lives this morning. We want to do that. And that's why we're here, to know you more and to see your faithfulness and your goodness. 
And Lord, just to, to love you more as, as we learn about Jesus, as we see you in your heart. And so, Father, we thank you that we're here once again this morning. Give us understanding. I pray that we'd be free from distractions. And Lord, that uh, we would just open our ears to hear from you what it is that you desire to teach us as we go through your word here in Mark chapter 10. In Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So we see that as Jesus is continuing his journey towards Jerusalem, and as they're traveling on the road here, there was one who came to Jesus, knelt before him, and asked him a very, very important question. He asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And what we're going to learn from Mark's gospel is this one is rich, he was wealthy. Matthew's account tells us that he is young. Luke's gospel tells us that he's a ruler. So in our text, we have that familiar story of the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and asks him, how do I inherit eternal life? And I just kind of picture this individual. He's young, he's probably handsome looking, uh, he's very resourceful, probably kind of a guy that's uh, in your face kind of guy, uh, just puts it right out there on the line. I mean, immediately he comes to Jesus, he lays out his cards on the table. Hey, I'm not going to beat around the bush, uh, and, and I'm not going to, to mix words. What must I do that I may inherit eternal life? I'm handsome, and I'm rich, and, and he was probably smart. He was one that I'm sure that was a shrewd business dealer. He was one that was known. He probably worked out in the gym every day. I don't know. But what else is there to do? And that's the mentality of most people. What must I do to get to heaven? And you can tell a lot where an individual is with the Lord by just asking them. If you were to die and go to heaven, and, and God asks you, why should I let you into heaven? What would your answer be? And there are those that we know that are all around us, that are linked to us, that we know that they would answer, well, because I've been a moral person or I've been a generally good person. I, my good outweighs my bad. I've gone to church all my life. I, I belong to a church, they might say. They might answer, well, I was a good husband. I was a good wife. I provided for my family. I was involved in charitable and worthy causes in the community. Whatever that answer may be, but you see, that doesn't get you into heaven. There's only one answer to that question why should I let you into heaven if God was to ask us? And that is because of the blood of Jesus. And we know that our Christianity is not based on what we've done, it's based on what he did. And as last week, during Passion Week, during Holy Week, we're looking at the, the text there in John's Gospel as we saw Jesus, first of all, prayer there in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus praying, Father, if it is possible, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. What cup? The cup of suffering and death. If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Why was Jesus praying that? What he was praying was that if there's any other way for man to obtain salvation, if it can be obtained salvation by deeds or by being good or being religious or by being rich, by prestige, being a ruler, whatever it might mean, then I don't have to suffer. I don't have to take on the cup of suffering and death. I don't have to be crucified. If there's any possible way 
If there's any possible way, let this cup pass from me. But Jesus didn't stop there, did he, in his prayer. He said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And the fact that Jesus submitted to the will of the Father, and he freely and with joy, as the scripture says, went to the cross, it shows us that there's only one way to salvation, and that is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ as he died for you and for me. And of course, as he was on that cross, he would cry out, it is finished, it is done, I provided the work. I have done it. I've shed my blood for you. So now there is forgiveness of sin. And now you can come into right relationship with the Father because Jesus said, I am the way to the Father. There is no other way in John chapter 14 because I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And so it's only one answer that we know, and that is the blood of Jesus Christ. So this rich young ruler comes to Jesus asking, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's the mentality of a lot of people thinking, this is what I've got to do to gain God's approval to obtain eternal life. And maybe this young man realizes there's something that's empty in his heart and in his soul. Maybe he realizes that, that being right before God isn't in being young. It isn't in being a ruler. It isn't in being rich. So Jesus answers him in verse 18 and said, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. Good teacher was a title never, never applied to the rabbis or to the teachers in Jesus' day. There's no instance that we see that in, in, in Scripture. There's no instance in the whole Talmud of a rabbi ever being addressed as a good master. Only God was called good by them. And the reason that a rabbi never called, was called good was because that signified sinlessness, a complete goodness. So Jesus, as well as everyone else that would hear this rich young ruler address Jesus in that way, hey, good teacher, they would recognize that Jesus was being called by this individual by a unique title, by this young ruler. And so Jesus said, why do you call me good? No one is good but God. Now, in saying this, there are some liberal scholars and commentators that say that Jesus here, what he's doing is he's denying that he is God. That Jesus is really correcting or rebuking this young ruler here for calling him good. But that's not what's happening here at all. Jesus is simply trying to get this young man to understand the implication of what it is that he's saying. He, he, he's getting them to realize, what are you saying to me? Do you understand what you're saying when you call me good. Jesus is not denying his deity, but instead he's trying to draw out from this rich young ruler to reflect upon the fact that, yes, that you are calling me good, therefore you must consider me to be God. You must have the implication that you know that I'm God, because only God is good. Now think about this. Jesus is just trying to get him to realize, do you really know what it is that you're saying when you call me good? Jesus is saying either I am God or I'm, you know, not good because he says that there is none good except one that is God. And this totally, by the way, undermines and contradicts the whole New Age mentality that Jesus was simply just a good teacher or a good guru or a good master or a good spiritual leader. But is he singularly God? Oh no, they will say, or others will say. Jesus, Jesus is either God or he's not good. He is God and he is good. So you can't say that, well, he, he's good, but he's not God. 
So Jesus is essentially saying and declaring that if you're calling me good, then you're admitting that I am God. For there is only one that is good, and that is God. Do you understand? Do you understand what it is that, I'm, that you're implying when you call me good, is what he's saying to this rich young ruler. And so Jesus continues. He says, do you know the commandments? You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. So Jesus, answering this question, begins to flash across to him those commandments that deal with man's relationship with his fellow man. In verse 20, he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Again, as we look at the Ten Commandments there in the book of Exodus, the first four commandments deals with man's relationship with God. The last six deals with man's relationship with his fellow man. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal or murder or bear fault witness. You honor your father and your mother. But interesting, Jesus left out the last commandment, which is what? Thou shalt not covet. Jesus did not point out that, that he didn't say, well, what about that commandment? What about coveting? You're a rich young ruler. I think maybe you got a problem with this. Jesus didn't say that. He simply listed some commandments that this guy acknowledged. And Jesus didn't dispute it, that, that he had kept it. I've honored mom and dad. I haven't murdered or bore false witness or committed adultery. The way that those commandments are interpreted. I have kept them. And of course, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he gives us the real meaning of the law, doesn't he? It's not just your actions, but it's your heart. And Jesus went on to say on the Sermon on the Mount that if you look at another with lust, then you have committed adultery. If you hate another or if you're angry at your brother in your heart, then you're guilty of murder. And Jesus would say on the Sermon on the Mount that therefore your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And when the disciples heard that, they must have been absolutely astonished. What do you mean our righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees? Because everybody considered those religious leaders to be so righteous in their outward actions. And those Pharisees, those scribes, the religious elite could say, I haven't murdered, I haven't committed adultery. I've kept the, the dot and tittle of the laws in my giving, and I pray and I fast. The outward actions of the religious leaders, no one could be more righteous than them. But the point Jesus was making, that inwardly they were like dead man's bones. They didn't have a heart for God. And there was contempt, and there was greed. And he says, if you lust, you've committed adultery. If you're angry, you've committed murder in your heart. So your heart needs to be right with God. Your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. So God sees the heart, not just the outward actions. So watch, watch what Jesus does with this young man. He isn't rebuking him. He isn't going to come down on him hard, but instead he's going to show compassion. He's going to love him and be honest with him and show him really what is lacking in his life as we read in verse 21. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack... Go your way, sell whatever you have, and give it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven, and come take up the cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word, and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So this rich young ruler leaves Jesus. He's discouraged. He's defeated. He's, he's down. It's the only instance that I can think of in the gospel where an individual comes and kneels to Jesus and then leaves worse off than when he came. 
instead of challenging this man's fulfillment of the law, which Jesus had every right to do, Jesus points him back to what is commonly called the first table of the law. Those commandments having to do with our relationship with God. And Jesus is challenging him to put God first, to fulfill the commandment of loving the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. You are calling me good. Therefore, come and follow me. And as you follow me, as you put me as the priority in your life, you're going to have treasure in heaven. Sell all that you have and give to the poor. But this man at this time was more concerned about the worldly, earthly treasures than about God's heavenly treasures. Jesus knew that this, this man, that money was the priority in his life, that possessions were dominating his life. Jesus is not telling us this morning that you have to give everything away that you own to the poor so we can go to heaven. That's not what he's telling us this morning. Because then the poor, would they have to give everything away so they can go to heaven. That's not what Jesus is implying here, that we have to give everything away, take a vow of poverty. But what Jesus is doing here is that he's desiring to free this man. He's saying, simplify your life and follow me. Make me the priority of your life. I do want to give you a little side note on this. Because what Jesus is teaching here blows away that philosophy and teaching out of the water of those who come along with the prosperity gospel that say that riches and prosperity is a sign of spirituality. And there are those that will even teach that godliness is a way to prosper. And of course, Paul, when he was writing to Timothy in, in that epistle to Timothy, would say, from such, you need to turn away. Now, possessions are not inherently wrong. Many great men of Scripture were wealthy. We know Abraham was, and David, and Solomon was, and Nicodemus, and Joseph of Arimathea. All men, all those guys were wealthy, and they loved the Lord. But when your wealth or your possession begins to dictate and have priority in your life, dictate where you spend your time, begins to be the priority in making decisions for your life, then there is something that is terribly wrong. And Jesus was dealing with one particular issue in this man's life that was holding him back from fully following the Lord. And you see, as we make application for our own lives this morning, in your life and in my life, it might be an entirely different issue. It might be not just wealth or possessions. It might be a relationship that, of some sort that, that isn't right being unequally yoked, dating somebody that isn't a Christian, that's taking you away from the Lord. Maybe it's a hobby that may take you away from the Lord. We all love doing things. Certainly we do. But it's become a priority. It may be possessions. It may be your business. It may be your job. It may be something entirely different. But you see, the error of this man's life was not that he possessed riches, but that the riches possessed him. And riches dominated him. And Jesus is trying to free him from something that had priority in his life over his relationship with the Lord. Because Jesus knows that riches can be a snare. Because they tend to make us satisfied with this life instead of longing for the kingdom. And, and it keeps us oftentimes when they become a priority where we want to amass more and that's what that I want to do. 
and that's my priority, then we're not investing and prioritizing the things of the kingdom. And so this young rich ruler went away sad, grieved, because the Lord was not a priority with him at this point. His possessions, his riches were dominating his life and his heart. And this man left saying, I can't let it go. I can't let it go. Perhaps the Lord might be speaking to one or two of us this morning. That there are things that he's been telling you, you need to let it go. Because they have grabbed your heart and they're a priority over me. They're taking up a lot of time. It might be just a computer. It might be something else entirely that has that just really gripped your heart and is the priority of your life and, and has priority now over your relationship with the Lord. And the Lord has been dealing with you and you've been saying, I can't let this go. And the Lord, once again this morning, might be pressing on your heart, you need to let it go. Make me the priority of your life. And in this man's case, it came to Jesus asking, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus is really pressing in on an issue. Your possessions are taking you away from that which is truly important, and that is picking up your cross and following after me and obtaining treasure in heaven. So this is what Jesus was attempting to do with this rich young ruler. He wasn't trying to make his life miserable. He wasn't trying to be one that was trying to be a killjoy in this guy's life. He was trying to set him free of the things that were controlling him. Let it go. And if there's anything in your life that is controlling you, the Lord is saying, let it go. And pick up your cross and follow after me. Well, this man went away sorrowful, in verse 23. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for with God all <coughs> things are possible. Interesting, Jesus saying, It is hard for a man, uh, a rich man, to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at his words. It was a very remarkable statement that Jesus makes here. As he speaks of the love for riches, entrusting in riches and possessions and things, having priority over God. Jesus is saying it does terrible things to the soul. Now think about this. Some of us, and certainly in our society as a whole, we are very envious of those who have wealth, who have fame, who have prestige. Sometimes we can look at them. We, we see the entertainers, we see the sports stars, we see the music stars and all of those in our society that have the money, that have the fame, that have the riches, and, and we think only if I had that, I wish I had that. If I had the money and the fame, the prestige and all that, life would be great, and so many in our society want to pursue that. It's a model for them. But you and I as Christians, if we really understand what Jesus is saying, we would not feel that way at all. We would feel sorry for those. And our hearts should break for those whose riches dominate their lives. 
those who have no interest in God's riches, where God is not a priority in our lives, we should feel sorry for them because there's an emptiness in their lives. And it was what Jesus said that what good is it if you gain the whole world but you lose your own soul? So we got to keep things in eternity's perspective. And Jesus here is saying in verse 25, it is easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, you may be here and you've heard the interpretation of this explained that, that in Jerusalem in Jesus' day, all the markets would stop. Of course, all the ancient cities had walls around them, these stone walls, and, and when it came to the Sabbath, or at evening time, sometimes they would close the gates to those cities where you couldn't get in. But if you came in at night or on the Sabbath and you had a camel or you came in caravans, you couldn't come in. There was a little gate called the needle gate that was actually a gate inside the main gate. And it would be open to allow access to only one person at a time. And so what Jesus is saying, that if you unloaded your camel, you found yourself in that situation, the main gate is closed, and here's this needle gate, you took the load off the camel, you took all of your, your stuff and everything off of him, and you got the camel down on his knees, and if you pushed and you pulled and you strained and, and you worked on getting that camel through that needle gate with a lot of effort and a lot of energy and a lot of strength and a lot of determination, you could push that camel through the needle gate. You know what the problem with that explanation is, which I have heard on several occasions? Is that there's no evidence whatsoever there was ever such a thing as a needle gate. Matter of fact, it was made up. There are even those who have gone on tours to Jerusalem where somebody will come along and say, hey, for a little bit of extra few bucks, I'll show you where this needle gate is. So there's no needle gate, okay? That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying the key here in verse 27, with man it is impossible with man, it is impossible. You know, there are a lot of people that we know that would like to believe with a lot of struggle and a lot of effort, with a lot of guts and drive and determination, you can save yourself. And Jesus says, with man, it's impossible because the wages of sin is death. The soul that sins shall surely die. And none of us, we can save ourselves. Jesus is saying, with man, it is impossible. You can't enter the kingdom of God on your own works, your own riches, your own efforts. With man, it is impossible. But Jesus went on to say, with God, it is possible. Because it is a work of God's grace. God's grace is sufficient for the rich man, for the poor man, whoever it might be. God can free us from whatever we may be enslaved to. And that goes for all of us. And every single person to inherit that eternal life that this man is asking about has to acknowledge their complete and utter need for the work of the cross in their lives to come to, to Jesus humbly, admitting that I am a sinner and I plead the blood of Jesus Christ. I believe in you, Lord, to receive that gift of eternal life at the hands of Jesus from the cross. It's not what we do, it's what he did. So here's Peter, he's, he's picking up on all this, and he says in verse 28, see, we've left all and followed you. Lord, we're not like the rich young yuppie there who is unwilling to pay the price. <coughs> Just want to add a quick note, and then we'll move on. Kind of interesting, something to think about. The rich young ruler left very sorrowful, but we don't know if he stayed in that state, do we? 
Could be perhaps he thought about and said, you know, Jesus is right, and I need to, to leave all and follow him. And it's interesting that there are a few Bible scholars, a couple commentators, that have suggested that this young man, the rich young ruler, was John Mark himself who penned this gospel. We do know that John Mark came from a wealthy family. It is also only Mark that records this little story that we're going to see later on in Mark's gospel that, that, well, in this case, that Mark is the only one that records of the rich young ruler that Jesus looked at him and loved him, had compassion for him. So if it was Mark, and we don't know for sure, it's just speculation, he later on adds a footnote about when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane that Mark's gospel records of a young man that flees from the scene of the arrest of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember Jesus was arrested by the soldiers, all the disciples split, but in Mark's gospel it tells of this young man who was kind of watching and hanging out from a distance with the disciples, and he ended up fleeing and running. The soldiers who arrested Jesus thought this young man was with Jesus. This young man's not named. So they tried to grab him and, and were told that they only grabbed his garment and the young man wrestled out of it and went streaking into the night. I kind of like to think that maybe, perhaps, that the rich young ruler was that young man there in the garden, <coughs> the rich young ruler, as Mark adds, that Jesus looked at me with love, with compassion. And he went away and he said, Jesus is right. And he gave away all. He did. And he was that same young man there in the garden at Jesus' arrest. It would mean that Jesus was honest with him and loved him and put his finger on what was wrong in his life. Riches are dominating you. And there would have come a time when this young man weighing what Jesus said, understanding that he was putting all his present comfort and material wealth in the balance against eternal life and decided to put it away and obey Jesus. He gave everything away. He had nothing left but a robe, and he came and he followed Jesus. I do know that perhaps if there's any of us that are here this morning, that you can have that same kind of story. That maybe there's something in your life that has been a priority and the Lord is saying, I want you to leave it and follow after me. And what my prayer is is that you would. Because as you do, that's where you're going to find true joy in that abundant life that God has for you. You're going to find the peace of God and you're going to see that you're going to sense a real purpose in your life as you just serve him and prioritize the things of the kingdom. So here is, back to Peter, as he is saying, we've left all. And so Jesus answered, verse 29, said, As surely I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake in the Gospels, who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions in the age to come eternal life. You'll be blessed, you'll be tended, taken care of, you're part of the kingdom. Don't forget that the real reward will come when you get to heaven and serving the Lord. Now you may not make a lot of money, but as you prioritize the things of the Lord, know this, when you invest in the things of the kingdom, know that the retirement benefits are out of this world. They truly are. Because of the rewards and blessings that are awaiting you.
you who are investing in heaven and serving the Lord. It's going to come as you do that in this world with trials and trouble and persecutions. Remember that these disciples, that when Jesus dies and he resurrects and they've committed in serving the Lord and going out and preaching the gospel news, that they're going to go through persecution and difficulties. Many of them are going to be persecuted by the hands of their own brethren. They're going to lose their inheritance, their homes. It would cause them to lose family relationships as they were branded as heretics. And many of the Jewish homes that, that where a believer came in Jesus Christ, they would hold a funeral service and consider that child or that person as dead who received Jesus Christ as their Savior. It's one of the reasons why the book of Hebrews was written. If it was Paul the Apostle who was the author, we don't know for sure, but he was encouraging those Hebrew believers in the first century that were experiencing just the persecution and the tendency to go back to Judaism. And it was the author that says, listen, why go back to that which can't save you? The animal sacrifices, the temple worship. Jesus, he's the author of eternal life. He's superior to any religious leader, to any religious system. His sacrifice on Calvary's cross will take away sin. The animal sacrifices weren't enough. That he's building a holy habitation, a temple. They would look down on the temple in Jerusalem and, and they would miss all of the, the pageantry and the temple worship and the sacrifices and all of that. And, and the author of Hebrews is saying, listen, you got something much superior. Jesus Christ, who ministers in a superior sanctuary, a heavenly sanctuary, and he's putting together a temple, a living temple here. Understand that. But it was very difficult. And Jesus is saying, you may be persecuted. You will. You'll lose brother and mother and sister, but you're going to gain the family of God a hundredfold. Now, what Jesus is not saying as some teach, that if I give a dollar, then you're going to get a hundredfold back. And you can turn on Christian TV, and there's program after program, ministry after ministry, they're on top of each other. And, and they'll come up, and they'll teach this every single program. Give my ministry a dollar, and plant your seed faith, brother and sister, to my church, and you'll get a hundredfold back. And I always wonder, why don't they give... I feel like writing a letter. Why don't you give to me, okay? Why don't you give to me, and then you'll get a hundredfold back, okay? I think that's a pretty good plan, isn't it? Maybe I'll start a letter campaign. Brother, I'm going to allow you to practice what you preach. Why don't you give to my ministry some money, and you'll get a hundredfold back? But you've got to have enough faith. That's not what Jesus is saying here. And he's not saying that you have to take a vow of poverty in order to serve Christ. Some have interpreted that this chapter to mean that you have to take a vow of poverty, give away everything, and become like monks and hermits. But Jesus is saying, as you give freely, follow him, that the kingdom of God is going to be opened up to you. Not that you're suddenly going to win the lottery, but as you center your life around Jesus, you're going to gain the family of God a hundredfold. I know that there are some of you that are here that you've experienced that breach in your family because your faith in Jesus Christ, it has cost you. But you have the family of God. And you have new relationships that are in Christ, that are strong relationships, that bond of love, that bond that is found in Christ, brothers and sisters that are all here. And it's just glorious to realize that you belong to the family of God. 
You may have been alienated from your natural blood relatives as a result of your commitment to the Lord, but you've come to such a rich, broader family. Jesus says, look, no one has left these things, but what they are going to receive a hundredfold. You'll be rewarded, Peter, in the age to come. I was reading a while back something that, that kind of bothered me a little bit. It was a survey that Focus on the Family did with ministry leaders and pastors of different denominations and non-denominational churches. They found that a majority of pastors today are very discouraged. They're discouraged in the churches that they're ministering to. They say it's hard. They, they don't know if it's worth it. A majority of pastors think that maybe I just ought to leave the ministry. They don't care for the ministry, and I thought that's sad. There was a statistic that I read. 85% of pastors' wives believe that the ministry has been a, had a negative effect on their family and their children. And I read that, and it broke my heart. And what I want to say for this church family is it's been a tremendous, and I mean this from my bottom of my heart, what a tremendous blessing it has been for me and my family to be a part of this church family. And I love being the pastor of this church. And I love being here with all of you. And me and my family, we've been so blessed by having you guys in our lives. We truly would rather be no other place. To be right here with all of you with the family of God, because of the love that is here. And I know that we're not a perfect church. We never will be a perfect church. And this family is growing. And in our own families, there's always struggles, there's always challenges. You don't think it's going to be any different in the family of God? Of course it is. But I do know that if my house was to blow away, that my family would have a place to stay. Because one of you would take us in. If my car breaks down on the highway over here, then one of you is going to get me a ride to where I need to be. And truly we have been blessed, and I hope that you have been blessed, and that you would consider that this church family is a tremendous blessing for you to be here and be a part of this family, and the joy and privilege and the honor for us to be a part of the body of Christ here at Calvary Chapel. And I know that it isn't always easy. It isn't always easy for me, and it always isn't fun but I wouldn't want to be any other place or be doing any other ministry. And I can understand a little bit over the years of being here what Paul was saying as he was praying for the church at Philippi there in Philippians chapter 1 as he was being persecuted, chained to a Roman soldier because of his commitment to spreading the gospel and he would express his joy and thankfulness to the saints as he writes, just as it is right for me to thank this of you all because I have you in my heart inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of this gospel. All are partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness how greatly I long for you all with all the affection of Jesus Christ. And this I pray that your love may to abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment that you may approve the things that are excellent that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ and what my prayer and hope for us here at Calvary Chapel is that we would be ones that we would approve the things that are excellent because you can look at me and you can nitpick me to death and I'm not always going to do everything right and I'm not always going to do everything that, that you look at and say, oh, I wish they would have done it different. I tried to be the godly man that God wants me to be. 
But we can come in and we can, in this world where we like to criticize and we like to analyze and we like to, to scrutinize and we can do that to each other. And we all know people that won't go to church in their churches because it seems like there's nothing but backbiting and there's fighting and there's criticism and, and all of this. May people, as this church family grows, come in and know that the love of Christ is here, that we love God and we love each other, that love covers a multitude of sin. It doesn't mean we don't correct and rebuke and deal with those things that we need to deal with. Of course, that's all part of love. But we stand by each other and we love each other and we love being around each other, especially in the days in which we're living in because it is hard out there and there needs to be a place where we can come in and approve the things that are excellent. Hey, keep growing in the Lord. Keep learning. Make those relationships with one another. And let the Lord work in us, approving those things which are excellent with each other. Growing in our love for Him and for each other. I know that that's what we're going to do. To lift and encourage one another. The full benefits of the kingdom that we can enjoy now and certainly when we go to heaven. In verse 31, but many who are first will be last and the last first. The last shall be first. Those who are given up now and are following the Lord, it may not be as rich as I could have been materially. My bank account may not be what it could have been, but I give freely. I, I've committed to just serve the Lord and whatever he's called me to do to make him the priority of my life. Maybe you could have made more money because you're working on Sunday or you've decided that you're going to be here in the evenings instead of working late. That's your commitment. And you maybe have given up some things of the world because you said those things aren't my priority. I'm serving the Lord, whatever that might mean for you. And it is my heart that, that it, that's your attitude, that you would say, Lord, you're the priority. You're going to just take care of me and bless me however you want. I may not be on the cover of Fortune 500, but you know what? The first shall be last and the last shall be first. And I want to be rich in eternity's values and views. So all who sacrifice for the Lord will be rewarded in verse 32 as we finish this morning. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was going before them. And they were amazed, and as they followed, they were afraid. Then he took the twelve aside again and began to tell them the things that would happen to him. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him, and on the third day he will rise again. So this is the third time that we have recorded, that we've seen, that Jesus telling his disciples now in increasing details what the cross will involve, and yet they don't understand. But Jesus has given truth to them. And that's one thing that Jesus always did is he spoke truth to them because he is truth. And he'll speak truth to your heart, even though it may seem hard to take or figure out, but he is truth. And he says to you this morning that I love you, give up anything that it has priority over you because I died for you. And that's what we're going to remember now as we come to the communion table. That we have the greatest riches that anyone can have. That is the gift of eternal life that comes through Jesus Christ and the inheritance of heaven that are ours who have put our faith in him. Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for this important lesson to help us keep our priorities in you and with eternity and with heaven, Lord. That the world, this is not where it's at but it's serving you and living for you. So, Father, I thank you for this time and that very important question that was asked of Jesus, what must I do? We realize it's what you did. 
So, Father, this morning, even though there may be just a few of us that are in this place this morning, I do want to give any opportunity, if there's anyone here that maybe you thought this is what I do to gain eternal life, but you've never really made a commitment to Jesus Christ. We want to give you opportunity. Maybe you're sitting out in a coffee shop and you're thinking, I understand. The, door's knock, the Lord's knocking on the door of your heart that it's a free gift that comes by putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. With man it's impossible. You can't save yourself. But with God all things are possible. And he made it possible, Jesus, as he went to the cross for you to die for your sins because we have all sinned. And to, to know that he rose again from the grave and you surrender your life to him right now if you've never done that. If you've never come into right relationship with God, it comes through <coughs> Jesus Christ. It comes by believing in him alone. Surrendering your heart to him. And you can pray right where you're at, Jesus, come into my heart. I believe that you're the son of God who died for me. And I know I can't save myself. And I believe you died for every one of my sins, so forgive me. I am a sinner. I confess it. I ask that you be my Savior and my Lord, the priority of my life. I surrender my heart to you right now. I believe that you were put into a grave and that you rose again and that you're alive and you're alive in my heart right now. Thank you for saving me and forgiving me. And if anybody prayed that prayer for the first time by chance, anybody here, I'd like for you to just raise your hand, put it back down. Anybody out?